This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Hi, I'm Blair. Want to hear something scary? Join me as I read the creepiest urban legends, folk tales, and ghost stories that I learn on my travels around the world and that we receive from listeners like you. But only if you think you can handle it. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, sweet screams. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Welcome to ParCast Crime Bites. We wanted to give our listeners some additional content to help them dive even deeper into the true crime world. Every week, in addition to your normal con artists episode, we're exploring the most fascinating true crime themes covered across the ParCast network. We've collected short clips from some of our most popular ParCast originals to help us explore ideas like motivation, method, and madness, and show how interconnected the true crime world really is. You can find the original episodes for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. A list of episodes that we used will be posted in the episode description. Today, we're discussing cases of isolation. What kind of effect does living in isolation with little contact with the outside world, friends, or family have on the psyche? Isolation, or cutting off a person from contact with others, is a dangerous tactic used by some criminals to maintain power and control over their victims. The removal of external social influences can even kill you. Dr. Cassandra Alcaraz of the American Cancer Society found that social isolation increases the risk of premature death at similar rates to smoking and obesity. Isolation is particularly common among cults, Many cult leaders sever their members from family and friends, encouraging an us-versus-them mindset. Without outside contacts, members rely on the other people in their cult for everything they need, from shelter and food to emotional guidance. Isolation is also a key component of kidnapping and hostage-taking. People held in captivity for long periods of time will not only suffer trauma for whatever physical abuse they may endure from their captor, but also suffer the effects of extreme isolation. Being held in captivity can lead to anxiety, depression, and intrusive thoughts that can continue after escape. Research shows that prolonged extreme isolation can damage the brain. According to a study conducted by researchers at McGill University, isolation can deteriorate the mind's ability to function. Isolation can also lead to anxiety, paranoia, memory lapses, and even hallucinations. 
Clinical psychologist Ian Robbins believes the hallucinations are the brain's way of dealing with the lack of stimulation involved in being isolated. We'll explore these effects and more in today's episode. The first clip is from Hostage, covering the seven-year captivity of Colleen Stan. On May 19, 1977, Colleen Stan was hitchhiking from her home in Eugene, Oregon, when she accepted a ride from a harmless-looking couple with an infant girl. But the couple was far from harmless. Cameron and Janice Hooker had kidnapped Colleen to be their sex slave. Colleen spent the first 24 hours of her captivity locked in a box until Cameron finally opened it. Suddenly, Colleen was jolted awake. She had no idea how long she'd been asleep. With her head in the box, darkness swallowed her. Cameron grabbed her and removed the box from her head, then led her to a bedpan, still blindfolded. She felt dizzy, and her throat was drier than sandpaper. Colleen's voice cracked as she asked when she could go home. Cameron replied, soon. He fed Colleen a plate of rotting leftovers and made her drink a glass of water, then put her head back in the box. She would later find out that she had already spent over 24 hours locked in his basement, and it would be another full day before Cameron came to feed her again. According to Dr. John Leach, a fellow in survival psychology at the University of Portsmouth, during the first 10 days of captivity in extreme isolation, a hostage is likely to exhibit anxiety, introspection, and bursts of restlessness, including thrashing and yelling, and Colleen was no different. After two days in isolation, Colleen grew agitated. She started thrashing, crying and moaning. She was understandably in hysterics. Suddenly, she heard someone descend the stairs. She assumed it was Cameron, but when the box over her head opened, she saw Janice's face frowning down at her. Janice asked her in earnest what was wrong. Colleen could barely fathom the ridiculousness of that question. For lack of something better, she said she was cold. That clip from Hostage detailed Colleen Stan's first two days in extreme isolation. Colleen realized that the only way for her to cope was to try to comply with Cameron and gain his trust. If he trusted her, he might let her out of the box. To this end, Colleen became susceptible to suggestion, which, according to Dr. John Leach, survival psychologist at the University of Portsmouth, is common in victims of extreme isolation. Colleen began to believe in the company, an organization that Cameron told her would kill her and her family if she ever tried to escape. After seven years of captivity, most of which she spent locked in a box under Cameron and Janice's bed, Colleen finally escaped from the home. Janice had revealed to Colleen that she too was a victim of Cameron and that the company was not real. Janice helped Colleen escape and Cameron was sentenced to 104 years in prison. Colleen had experienced 21 years of freedom before her kidnapping. But what happens when you're born into isolation? Coming up, we discuss Katie Morgan Davies, who was born into a cult. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. 
Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the show. From the increased compliance and suggestibility of Colleen Stan, we have seen that isolation can have detrimental effects on the human brain. So what happens when a life in isolation is the only life you've ever known? Our next clip is from ParCast Original Cults and covers the isolated world of the members of the Workers' Institute, led by Aravindan Balakrishnan in London. Balakrishnan convinced the members of his cult that he was a god, and the world outside of the cult was dangerous. In 1983, one of his members, Sean Davies, gave birth to a daughter named Prem Maupinduzi Davies, who later changed her name to Katie. Because Katie was born into the cult, she had no experience with the outside world. She never went to school, made friends, or saw a doctor. Then, in the summer of 1997, Sean Davies died. Aisha Wahab was the only one present at the hospital at the time. At the inquest into her death, the coroner asked Aisha whether Sean had any children. Aisha said no. Aisha later justified her actions, saying, quote, We definitely didn't want Katie to be taken away and not participate in building a new society. End quote. To Aisha, even amidst Sean's death, there was still a strong belief in Bala's vision of a new world. Later, Aisha would admit that grief and guilt caught up with her to some degree. After she left the cult, she admitted that the thought of leaving the Workers' Institute had crossed her mind several times. But every time she started to think about how she would exit, she quickly realized she had nowhere to go. She recounted, I had nobody outside. I had lost contact with my family. I had no money. I had no job. And I might have been deported. Dr. Kathleen Taylor, a cognitive neuroscientist, asserts that a core strategy across these groups is isolation. It plays an important role in the brainwashing process during the beginning stages of a recruit's indoctrination. But in Aisha's case, and for many others, the lifelong isolation creates huge obstacles down the road, should they ever consider leaving the cult. For those Institute members who even still had passports, Bala kept them confiscated at all times. In the years following Sean's death, the cult's environment continued to worsen. In 2004, tragedy struck the Workers' Institute yet again. Okar Ong, a Malaysian national who had joined the cult with Aisha Wahab back in the 70s, apparently hit her head on a kitchen cabinet, and a dire situation ensued. O was from Malaysia, like Bala. She had long worked as a nurse to help support the Workers' Institute. This might sound odd, given Bala's abhorrence of modern medicine, but he was nothing if not a man of contradictions. Either way, Katie fondly remembers O as one of the few members who ever pushed back against Comrade Bala. She recalled, quote, I only ever remember O talking back to him, unexpectedly defending herself against whichever charge had been brought. Secretly, very secretly, I admired her for having an independent mind, end quote. Katie was there when O hit her head. 
20 minutes later, O started vomiting and asked Bala to call a doctor. In keeping with his harsh, irrational views on medicine, Bala refused to call for help. O became disoriented and eventually fainted, going completely catatonic. She laid still for an hour before Balakrishnan finally caved and called an ambulance. It turned out that she had suffered a stroke and died later that day at the hospital. In that clip from Cults, a member of the Workers' Institute died as a result of leader Aravindan Balakrishnan's refusal to seek medical help from the outside world. Katie spent decades isolated in Balakrishnan's world until 2013 when she and two other members escaped. Balakrishnan was convicted of rape, child cruelty, and false imprisonment. In interviews after her escape, Katie spoke about the extreme isolation she suffered from birth and for 30 years after. She says she only went outside a handful of times, so rare that she can remember every detail of each outing. Shortly after her escape, Katie was interviewed by Jenny Cutler, a forensic psychologist for the United Kingdom's National Crime Agency. Cutler said that because of the isolation, Katie's social skills are at a prepubescent level, and she had no concept of everyday things, such as crossing roads safely or what a police officer does. Katie Morgan Davies endured extreme isolation and abuse as the daughter of a cult leader. But the people in our next clip created an isolated world for themselves from birth, and it impacted their lives thereafter. This final clip comes from Unexplained Mysteries and covers the peculiar case of June and Jennifer Gibbons, AKA the Silent Twins. June and Jennifer were born in 1963 to a housewife mother and a Royal Air Force father. Their troubles began around age four when their teacher noticed the twins only talked to each other. Making it harder, June and Jennifer were constantly uprooted. The family was forced to move cities every few years due to Aubrey's military job. This lack of stability only hindered their speech development. Unable to make lasting friendships at school, the girls increasingly relied on each other for companionship. In 1974, the family settled more permanently in the village of Haverford West, Wales. But the 11-year-old twins' peculiarities soon marked them as outsiders. By this time, June and Jennifer had even withdrawn from their family. They only spoke to Rosie, their seven-year-old sister, and each other. Gloria recalled hearing them talking to each other through their bedroom door and compared it to the twittering of birds. Even Rosie could only catch a word or two of the strange twin language they had created. The two girls were often spotted walking incredibly slowly, one a few feet behind the other in perfect synchronicity. They attempted to follow each other's lead so that any motion they made was in perfect unison. The girls refused to eat or go to the bathroom at school. They wouldn't answer teachers or socialize with other students. All the Gibbons children faced harassment for their skin color, but June and Jennifer were also bullied mercilessly for their strange habits. Other kids would call them names and pull their hair. 
The school eventually allowed the twins to leave class five minutes early to avoid their tormentors. Of course, this only isolated them even more. The twins retreated further into their silence. The truly strange thing about all this was that neither the school nor the Gibbons family sought to dive further into the girls' bizarre affectations. It wasn't until November 1976, when the girls were 13, that anyone seriously suggested that the silent girls might need psychological treatment. That clip from Unexplained Mysteries covers the early life of June and Jennifer Gibbons, who created an elaborate fantasy world to cope with their frequent moves and childhood bullies. But as they got older, their silent pact became a prison. They started experimenting with drugs and alcohol, looking for an escape. They eventually committed petty burglaries and an arson that landed them at a maximum security mental ward, where they stayed for the next 11 years. In 1993, Jennifer died suddenly. Afterward, June broke her silence. According to their biographer, Marjorie Wallace, the twins had agreed that one of them needed to die so that the other could live freely. The clips today highlighted different types of isolation, but had similar effects on their victims. We heard in Hostage that Colleen Stan spent days in a box, increasing her susceptibility to Cameron Hooker's suggestions of a dangerous organization. In Unexplained Mysteries, June and Jennifer Gibbons were so enveloped in their isolated fantasy world that they felt the only way out was Jennifer's death. And finally, in Cults, Katie Morgan Davies spent 30 years inside the house that was home to the Workers' Institute and after escaping, faced an outside world she didn't understand. While June Gibbons, Katie Morgan Davies, and Colleen Stan all survived their isolation, it's likely that they're still reeling from the effects of the isolation. The lasting memory lapses, anxiety, and intrusive thoughts that researchers say come with long periods of isolation. Thanks for tuning into ParCast Crime Bites. We hope you enjoyed this episode on the effects of isolation. We'll be back next week with a new episode on economic misfortune. If you'd like to listen to the episodes we discussed today in full, simply search for our ParCast original shows, Hostage, Cults, or Unexplained Mysteries on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. I'll see you next time. <laughs>